Well, if you are in Acts chapter number 2, would you shout amen? Amen. Hey, did you get the uh, theme? Did you catch the big idea of the video that we rolled just a couple of minutes ago? This, this big idea of what can happen when people come together. Uh, the closing line, sort of the tagline of that uh, video was this. They'll put it up on the screen for us. In fact, why don't you read this out loud with me? Let's read it like we believe it. The world will be a much different place when the church comes together. If you believe that, shout amen. amen. It really is true. Teamwork does make the dream work. It really does. And by the way, this is true, this, this philosophy, this adage, this old saying, teamwork makes the dream work, is true no matter who the team is or no matter what the uh, pursuit is or the objective is that they are pursuing. Great things happen, uh, sweeping changes can occur when people join forces for a common cause Whatever that cause may be, whether it's a righteous cause or a not-so-righteous cause, when people come together, then powerful things can happen. Maybe social change. We all know that sweeping social changes happen when uh, the populace rises up. Sometimes those are righteous changes and good things, and other times not so much. But still, they, things change when people come together. Uh, maybe it's some government reform that needs to occur. Uh, recently, you might have caught all of the um, uh, uh, news coming out of Virginia when there was a great uprising, a great groundswell of people coming forth for the Second Amendment in the state of Virginia particularly and, and had some significant influence in the, in the legislative process there in Virginia. So maybe it's, maybe it's a government reform that needs to happen. Um, it, when, it, when people come together for a building project, then great things can happen. I would suggest to you that you're sitting in, here in Weaverville, you're sitting in the result of people coming together to accomplish something, and we're, we're living the blessing of that even now uh, in recent history for us. But, you know, we, in the video, you saw the pyramids, right? I mean, that was, a, that was a great project that came together thousands of years ago as people worked hard. Um, and then winning a national championship. It takes people to come together. If you're going to win a national championship, you might have noticed in that video, by the way, that Clayton Caldwell, who is our visual arts director uh, and builds all of our videos, is a Clemson Tiger fan. I'm not sure if you caught that. I don't think they were the most recent national champions, but they did make the video nonetheless. <laughs> so whether it's you know government reform or a ball team or whatever, I mean, teamwork makes dream work. But all of those kinds of causes, social change, government reform, building projects, you know, ball games, all of those kinds of projects, those things pale in comparison and they can never achieve the significance. They can never have the kind of eternal outcomes that occur when the church comes together. It really is true. It's not just that teams or communities or nations are different when the church comes together. The world will be a different place when the church comes together. We should recognize that there's a reason that the church's unity and the church's singleness of heart and the, and the church coming together, there's a reason that that changes the world. And here it is. It's because 
that when the church comes together, there's more than mere mortals at work. When the church comes together, God is at work powerfully in that assembly. In fact, you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter number two. Let me just show you a couple of passages in the book of Acts that state this clearly. Turn one page to Acts chapter four and look with me at verse number 33. Here's an example of this. Acts 4.33 says, and with great power. I want you to say those two words out loud with me, both campuses. Great power. Power. Say it again, and with great power. Where did the great power come from? It came from the operation of the Spirit of God. The apostles and the work that they were doing was not simply in human strength, but it was in the power of God. You know, Paul says something similar to this in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe, when he says, I came to you. When I came to you, I didn't come uh, in the wisdom of men. But I came to you in fear and in much trembling in the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit so that your faith would not rest in the power of men but in the power of God. When the church comes together in, in, the, in the experience of the first church in Acts chapter 4 and in Paul's ministry, there is great power. Turn a couple of more pages, if you will, to Acts chapter number 11. Look with me in verse number 21. Acts 11 and verse 21, that verse says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, pop quiz, why does verse 21 testify that a great number of people believe the gospel and turn to the Lord? There's only one reason that can happen. It is because the hand of the Lord was with them. Are you tracking with me? So here's the thing. People can come together uh, in, in human energy, in, in earthly projects and objectives and accomplish great things, certainly. But when the church comes together, then eternal things happen because God is at work changing lives and ultimately changing the world. And I just have to say to you that I'm so uh, thankful and feel so privileged to be a part of something so significant that God is powerfully at work in it, as he is here at Brookstone. And so I want to issue a challenge to you today as we're getting started uh, with this message, but really in this series, um, I want to issue a challenge to you that you will, uh, over the next four Sunday mornings, really just three more Sunday mornings as you're here today, over the next three Sunday mornings, would you be willing to exercise the personal discipline that will be required, and, and to some degree it will require some personal discipline, and the commitment to be in church uh, for the next three Sundays? And if you're here today, that would be four Sundays in a row. Now let me just be honest and say that would be like a world record for some of you, okay? Like four Sundays in a row, I mean, you know, some people go to church for Easter's in a row and feel like they've really done good. I'm asking you to exercise some real personal discipline, okay? And if you're well and healthy and able and in town, I want you to be here for four Sundays in a row. And if you're out of town, I, here's the, the challenge I want to give you. I want you to tune in online. I don't want you to miss the next four Sundays. Now, if you're in town, don't tune in online, all right? I want you, if you're in town... I want you to come. And if you're tuning in online today, I want you to jump in with us next week. 
I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm going to stop and go on a little uh, 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 side note here. I'm so thankful for the technology that allows us to stream our services every single week. And they go around the world. And every week we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, most weeks over a thousand people who tune in from all across the country, 40 plus states, a couple of different countries. And it's pretty incredible. But here's the thing, the overwhelming majority of the people who tune in online do so from Asheville and Weaverville. Asheville and Weaverville. Now, the fact is, sometimes we're working, right? And so we, we have to tune in online. Or sometimes we're sick or we're a caregiver and we can't be here. I'm so grateful we can provide that privilege. But sometimes we watch online because it's easier than coming. Here's my challenge to you if you're doing that today. The next three Sundays, I want you to be here. Because there's something about the church coming together. And there's a power when the church assembles There's a blessing when we can't assemble, but we can still participate. Thank God for that blessing. But there's a power that comes when we assemble. I'm giving you a challenge four weeks in a row. I want you to exercise personal commitment and and personal discipline to come together. I believe if we will, it will change us and I think it will change our church, and ultimately, I think it will change our community. Over these four weeks, we're going to be focusing our attention on the blessings and the outcomes of the church understanding what it means to come together. And so this is the reason that I've asked you to turn today to Acts chapter number 2. We're going to read the text in a minute, beginning in verse number 42, Acts 2.42. Let me set the scene for you, for those of you who may not be familiar Uh, with the book of Acts. Um, This book is significant for many reasons, not the least of which is because contained in uh, the chapter that we're in today specifically, Acts chapter 2, is the historical account of the birth of the New Testament church. Uh, You see this in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. Look there with me. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And when the day of Pentecost... Hey, everybody on both campuses say that word with me, Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is a Jewish festival, a Jewish festival day, which occurs 50 days after the Jewish Passover celebration. That means that it occurred 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus because Jesus was crucified at Passover. 50 days later, Acts 2.1 tells us, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, that's the apostles and, and those followers of Jesus, they were all with one accord in one place. Now verse number three tells us, Acts chapter, actually go to, back to chapter one and verse number three. Go back there just for a minute. Let me actually take you a little further back uh, before the actual birth of the church. Acts chapter one, verse three says that Jesus after his resurrection, showed himself alive uh, to his apostles by many infallible proofs, having been seen of them for 40 days. Now, everybody, everybody listen very carefully. After the death of Jesus, three days later, he rose from the dead. If you believe that, say amen. amen. This is a room full of believers, right? He's alive. So three days after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead. Then, For 40 days after his 
uh, uh, crucifixion, 40 days after his resurrection, he appears unto his disciples. Multiple places, multiple times, multiple venues, multiple reasons, but he's appearing to his followers. In fact, Paul tells us in Corinthians that he appeared to more than 500 at one time uh, in, one, in one place. So he tells them here in Acts chapter number uh, 1 and verse 4, after his resurrection, while he's appearing, he says to them in verse number 4, and being assembled together with them, with the, with the, the uh, disciples, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but that they should wait for the promise of the Father, which he reminded them, you have heard from me. Now, what was the promise of the Father? The promise was that he had said to them on the night of his arrest that I am going away, but when I go away, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is going to come. So after 40 days of appearing, he assembles on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. He says, don't go anywhere. You stay in Jerusalem until that promise is fulfilled. Now they're within a week, just a few days remaining before that promise is going to be fulfilled and the Spirit of God is going to come. And so then uh, Acts 1, verses 8 and 9, then he ascends up to heaven and they wait for the coming of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, then the Spirit came, 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, when the Spirit of God came, in that moment in Acts 2, verse 1, the, the church was born. That's the beginning of the New Testament church. The church, by definition, is the assembly of spirit-filled believers. That's what the church is. It is the assembly of spirit-filled believers. And so the New Testament church was born when the Spirit came and filled the believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Verse 14, Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, Peter then, on the day of Pentecost, preaches the very first Christian sermon ever delivered. Verse number 14 says, And Peter, standing up with the eleven, the other eleven uh, apostles, lifted up his voice and said unto the people, and he begins to preach. That's where the sermon begins in Acts 2 and verse number 14. Peter preached on Pentecost. Peter preached on Pentecost. Peter preached powerfully on Pentecost. Amen? Peter preached powerfully to the people on Pentecost. Say that five times, would you? So he preaches in the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And when you come to the end of the sermon, look at chapter 2 and verse number 41. Chapter 2, verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word, that is, they heard the sermon and received it, they were baptized, and that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So you have on the very first day of the church, the Spirit of God comes, the first sermon is delivered, people are converted, they're being baptized. Does that sound like a church today? People assemble, Spirit of God is present, Word of God declared, people believe it, believers are baptized. Sounds like the same thing that we do today. It's exactly what happened uh, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter number 2. So the church was born on that day. And every day since that day, God has been adding to his church. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 47. 
That verse says, these people, this church, this first church was praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to the church every day those who were being saved, or adding to the church daily uh, such as should be saved. Every single day since the day of Pentecost, God has been adding to his church. Every single Somewhere in the world, every day, God is adding to his church for the last 2,000 years. Listen to me. If you're part of the church, it's because you were added to the church. I want you to hear me. If you're part of the church, it was because there came a day when the Spirit of God added you to the church. Listen to this, Pastor. You were not born into the church. You might have been born into a church-going family. You might have been taken to church since before you were born, when you were in your mother's womb. You might have gone to church three times a week, but you are not in the church because you were born into a church-going family. If you were part of the church, you were added to the church by the Holy Spirit and because you believed the gospel. And so the Lord continues to add to his church. Let's read now. We've sort of made our way to our text. Let's read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 42. And they, that is those who were believing and being added to the church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together. All that believed were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and their goods and they parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as I just read, the Lord added, was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, by the way, I mentioned uh, several times over the last few minutes that this account in Acts chapter 2 records the birth of the church, the beginning. Um, But as all of us know, a birth, any birth, is not an end in itself, But rather, a birth is always a beautiful beginning. And what we naturally expect to happen after something or someone is born is that that newborn thing will begin to develop in a healthy way. And in the same way we expect that with a child or with a puppy, we ought to expect that with God's church. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. It was not fully developed in Acts chapter number 2. And the rest of the New Testament explains to us, it describes for us the healthy development with all the goodness, good things and bad things, all the good days and bad days. It explains to us the healthy development of the church. And so I want to talk about that. Jot it down somewhere in your notes. Let's, Let's begin by talking about the development of the local New Testament church. The development of the local New Testament church. Verse 47 again, the Lord is adding to the church those who should be saved. The church. Now, when you think about the church, if I were to just say to you those two words, the church, immediately what images come to your mind? What do you 
think of. Maybe you think of uh, steeples and pews. Uh, maybe you think of, when you think of the church, the first thing you think of is a musty Sunday school room that you attended when you were a little one and saw flannel graphs and learned Sunday school stories. Maybe that's the image that you have of church. Maybe it's uh, our church today. None of those are bad images of the church at all. But I want you to begin thinking about the church. When you think about her, you should, you should think of the church in two expressions. The, the invisible church and the visible church. Here's another way to say it. The global church and the local church. Now when we talk about the invisible church or the global church, we're not talking about buildings, we're talking about people, right? So the, the global church doesn't have buildings and steeples and pews. The global church is simply the assembly of every born-again believer in the world. I am a part of the invisible global church. I belong to Christ's church, and so do you if you're born again. But we also uh, have brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. They're part of that same church that we are. They're not a member of Brookstone, but they're part of Christ's church, right? And so we have brothers in Zimbabwe, and we have sisters in the far northern reaches of Scandinavia, and, and we have, we have uh, brothers and sisters who are in, in parts of Africa and, and uh, Great Britain and Asia and China and the underground church. This body of Christ all around the world, the global body of Christ, that's the invisible church. But then the church also, this invisible church, expresses itself in visible local congregations. And so, and so all over the world, here today in Weaverville and there on Merriman Avenue in Asheville, are two visible expressions of one local church. Brookstone is a visible local expression of the invisible, the global church. Now, by the way, this was clearly the command of Jesus. This is what he commanded would happen. Can I take you back to Acts chapter 1 for, for one more second? Look at verse 8. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It was clearly the command of Jesus that the church was not just to be a local expression of Christian faith in Jerusalem, but it was to expand into the regions beyond Jerusalem and ultimately around uh, the entire earth, verse number eight says. And that command has been fulfilled. We're living in the commandment or in the fulfillment of that commandment today. Now, it began in Jerusalem with 120 people in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, filled them. The church was born. Peter preached. 3,000 people, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, believed the gospel, received his word, were baptized. They were added to the church. By the end of the first day of the church, there were 3,120 members in the church. 
And then the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 47, and God kept adding to the church daily those who were being saved. So literally, by the time you get out of Acts chapter number 2, the church is multiplying into the thousands very, very rapidly. In fact, look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. Just kind of let me walk you through the development of the early church. Acts chapter uh, 6 and verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter, uh, yeah, Acts chapter 2 verse 1, there's 120 people in the church. Acts chapter 2 verse 47, there's 3,120 people in the first church. Uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 47, God's adding to the church every day so that by the time you come to Acts chapter 6, still in Jerusalem, the number of the disciples are multiplying. There's so many of them. Now, you and I know what happens when you get a lot of people together, don't you? When you get people together, you got problems, amen? Because people bring with us problems. When you look at your neighbor and tell them, you got problems, tell them. <laughs> you got yeah, you do too, bud. When people come together, we bring our problems with us. And, and this is what happened in Acts chapter 6. I got a lot of people in this church and there's a problem. The problem was ministry was breaking down because there were so many people that it was hard to take care of everyone. The point is, not the problem, the point is the multiplication of the church. And so here's what's happening. By the time you come to Acts chapter 6, the church in Jerusalem is all that there is. I mean, they're all, it is the global church, but it's all localized. They're all still assembled in Jerusalem until something happens that causes them to begin to spread out. Turn one page to Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1. Acts 8 verse 1. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, that's the death of the martyrdom of Stephen, and at that time, when Stephen was martyred, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they, that is the church that was at Jerusalem, were all scattered abroad. So, so the persecution drove the Christians out of Jerusalem. And they began to scatter. And look where they scattered to. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Look at what verse number four says. And therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Everybody look up here. Do you remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter one and verse eight? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Well, for Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, they're being his witness very effectively in Jerusalem only. And so in chapter 8, he allows persecution to come and drive them out of Jerusalem. And where do they go preaching the gospel? Judea and Samaria. The very regions around Jerusalem where Jesus had commanded them to go and carry the gospel. So what you have happening in Acts chapter 8 is the, is the spread of the church began in Jerusalem, and now it's going to begin to spread to Judea and Samaria. Look at chapter 9, Acts chapter number 9, and verse number 31. Acts 9, 31 says this. 
Then the churches had rest throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and they were edified. By the time you get to Acts chapter 9, it's no longer a church just in Jerusalem. It's no longer a church just in Judea, Jerusalem, and Samaria. Now it has reached Galilee to the far north in the land of Israel. It's continuing to spread. Turn one or two more pages to Acts chapter 13. If y'all are doing okay, shout amen. Are you, are you tracking with me? Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse number two, uh, two. This is now in the church in Antioch where the Bible says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Therefore, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them away. This is the beginning of the missionary ministry of Paul. Saul would become Paul. And he begins to carry the gospel, look at verse number four, to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And then they were at Salamis. So now they begin to carry the gospel beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, further than Galilee, up north past Antioch, and all the way around now into modern Turkey. Guess what's happening? The command of Jesus is being fulfilled and the church is spreading. It's becoming a global church. And through Paul's ministry, it would ultimately become just that, a church around the world. So the invisible church that began at Jerusalem now has filled the earth and is expressing itself in local congregations, local assemblies. And all along the way through the book of Acts as the church is developing, and remember this is happening within the first 100 years of, the, of church history. But in fact, by the time you come to the end of the first 100 years, the, the entire Roman Empire has been evangelized. And countless churches throughout that Roman Empire have developed. And along the way, and all of this has happened, by the way, without a completed New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament and the letters of Paul and the apostles uh, teaching them. And all along the way, some very important milestones are being met and some very important um, uh, things are occurring. Along the way, elders and pastors are being ordained in each of these local churches. Uh, all along the way, orthodox doctrine is being developed and, and codified and, and taught in the churches. So now the churches are beginning to teach and preach the same things based on the teachings of Paul and the apostles. Along the way, ministry is being uh, developed in terms of what should those churches be doing. And those ministries were very clear, the ministry of evangelism, the ministry of discipleship, the ministry of care for those in the church, and the ministry of mission. Those were the four ministries that were being developed in the book of Acts. And then along the way, uh, the canon was being developed. That is, the Bible was being uh, completed and assembled in the first several hundred years. All of this is the development of the local New Testament church. Now, here's what I want you to know and why I'm teaching you all of this. It is because Brookstone Church in the year 2020 is simply one in a long line, a 2,000-year-long line of local New Testament churches that have been birthed by the power of the Spirit of God. We know who we are, where we've come from, and what we are here to do. We're not making it up as we go. We know. This is the healthy development of the local New Testament church. Now, that would cause us then 
to, to focus our attention on the fact that we have been assembled together. In fact, all the way back in Acts chapter number two, you've been tracking with me over to chapter 13, but in, in Acts chapter number two, the Bible says that they were together. Do you see it? Acts chapter two, verse 44, all that believed were together. So it begs the question, if we are a part of this healthy local New Testament church, how do we relate together? I want you to jot this down in your notes. Let's, let's talk about the covenant relationship. The covenant relationship of each local New Testament church. Um, look with me in Acts chapter number 2 and verse 41. I already made a point of, uh, of pointing this out to you. Where the Bible says in verse number 41, there was added to them. Do you see it? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized in the same day there were added. Everybody say the word added. They were added to them. And then verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord, say the word, added to the church daily those who were being saved. So God's adding to his church. Now, those who are being added are being added because they believe. That's the way, that's the way you're added to the church. You believe the gospel and the spirit of God adds you. Well, look at verse 42, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And they, that is they who were believing, they who were being added, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So those who were being added then continued to believe. They were added to the church and they remained in the church because they continued to trust in the gospel. They held to those convictions of the gospel which they had believed. And then if you'll notice verse 44 says, and all that believed were together. Those believers who were added to the church and continued believing then continued together. They were together. And I would suggest to you that we are, look around, both campuses, I want you to look around at the people that you're gathered with today. We are together. We are together because we have been added through the Spirit of God giving us faith to believe the gospel and we continue to believe. Can I just say it to you this way? I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ today more than I did the day that I trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ. I continue to believe. And they were together. What does it mean for us to be together? The word that's translated together in verse number 44 is the Greek word koinos. Many of you will be familiar with this word or a form of this word, which is koinonia. The English translation of koinonia is fellowship. And we talk about fellowship a lot. It means mutual benefiting of one another. But it, it, is, it is an active expression of the fact that we are koinos, that we are joined together. Koinos means to be held in common or to be held with a common bond. Let me ask you a question. If y'all are listening, I want you to say amen. amen. Here's the question. How do we believers see our common bond in Christ? 
how do we, as believers, added to the body of Christ, assembled in the local church of Brookstone, how do we relate to one another? Or another way to ask the question would be, what are the terms of our union in Christ? How do we remain together? Well, the answer to that question is found in the word that I mentioned a moment ago, the word covenant. We are in a covenant relationship with Christ. Through his blood, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And we are in a covenant relationship with Christ. And it is that covenant relationship with Jesus that we share that binds us together. As we are in a covenant relationship with Christ, we are bound together in a covenant relationship with one another. So as you answer, as you think about the answer to the question, how do we as as believers in Christ, assembled in the local church, how do we interact? How do we relate to one another? I want you to think in terms of covenant. Now, that might be a little difficult for you because we don't think about the word covenant a whole lot. Uh, We tend to think more contractually than we do covenantly. So let me give you a definition of a covenant. Here it is. I hope you'll write it down somewhere. Covenant means to come together in order to pledge one's self to another. A covenant is where two or more people come together, like in a contract, but in a covenant we come together to pledge ourselves to each other. Now, as I said, it's similar to a contractual agreement, except there's one radical difference. A contract is about two people or more people coming together, but it's about you and me individually. We come together in a contract because there's a benefit to me as a part of that contract or that agreement or that relationship, and there's a benefit to you. And you do not enter into a contract unless you see benefit, self-benefit within the terms of that contract. Covenant is similar to that with this radical difference. That while a contract is about you and me, a covenant is about us. A contract is individually focused. A covenant is corporately focused. Here's another way to say it or understand it. Contractual relationships are always motivated by self-interests. But covenant relationships are always motivated by the interests of others. That is the radical difference. And we are not assembled in a contractual agreement or a loosely held fellowship agreement. We are covenanted together for the sake of of one another. Now, let me give you some examples uh, of, of covenants. Did you know that a marriage is a covenant? It is. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. Sadly, far too many people view their marriage as a contract. In a contract, when one person violates the terms of the contract, the other person is freed from the responsibilities of the contract. Not so in a covenant. And so too many people approach their marriage and say, I promise to love you forever and always, or at least until I don't anymore. I promise to love you 
until I don't feel like you're loving me the way that you should. And then, I, and then the deal is off. That's a contract. God never intended marriage to be a contract. It's covenant. If, you, if you're a young person, and some, or even not a young person, if somebody is looking you in the eye and saying, I want to marry you because, and all they say is, you make me happy. You fulfill me. You just make my everyday great. When I'm with you, my days are wonderful. If that's the language they're using, send him packing. Send him packing. Because if, if he or she wants to enter into a relationship with you, into a marriage with you, for their own personal benefit, that's a problem from day one. Marriage is not about you getting everything you want. Marriage is about you serving your spouse. We enter into a covenant in a marriage relationship. Did you know that true friendship is a covenant? A true friendship, not a, not a relationship that I enter into because it gives benefits to me. No, a true friendship, a friendship like David and Jonathan have, where 1 Samuel 18, 3 says they entered into a covenant together because they loved one another as brothers. True friendship is a covenant relationship. And local church membership, local church membership is a covenant relationship. Now, I want you to think of something. For some of you, it's been a lot of years since you did this, and so maybe you've forgotten about it. But did you know that every member of Brookstone Church has signed a membership covenant? Every person who's a member of our church has entered into an agreement, a covenant together. Because we recognize our church uh, is a covenant relationship. We are together in covenant. Let me just remind you of the things that you agreed to in the covenant that you signed when you became a part of Brookstone. It says, that covenant says that uh, becoming a member of Brookstone means that I am willing to grow. Number one, I'm willing to grow. I'm going to grow by faithfully attending worship, tithing my income, being equipped to do ministry together. I didn't come here. I didn't join this church just to sit and participate. I came to be transformed. I came to grow. That's what we agreed to. Secondly, our covenant says, I covenant to share. I, I, I agree to this. I understand that I need to be sharing my faith and I'm, gonna, I'm covenanting that I will not just be someone who sits on a chair. I will be a part of sending forth the gospel in my own personal relationships by sharing the gospel with those that I come in contact with. Number three, it says that we covenant to belong, that we will not remain isolated in this church family. It's what we agreed to. It's what we covenant together for. We will not remain isolated. We will not be lone rangers. We will lean into relationships. We will connect in groups and do life together. Number four, we covenanted to care. That I will not be indifferent or discompassionate toward my brothers and sisters in my church. I will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I will pursue peace and unity in my relationships. A covenant together to care. And then fifthly, we all agreed that we would covenant to go by serving in ministry. That we would be a part of advancing the work of the gospel by putting our hands to kingdom work, by serving in some capacity, by finding my role, my own spiritual giftedness and carrying out my role in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. All of us who are members said we are together because... We understand this covenant means that I will grow, I will share, I will belong, I will care. 
and I will go. Here's what I want you to notice. That while each of those statements of covenant will bring, when we live them out, they will bring personal blessing. We will all benefit from them personally. None of those covenant statements are motivated by self-interest. None of them. When you joined this church, you didn't sign a covenant that said, I'm here because of all the stuff I'm going to get. I'm here because I'm going to... I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm here because I'm going to be. No, you joined up and said, I'm going to serve these people. I'm going to advance his cause. I'm going to invest in this work. I'm going to carry some of this burden. I'm going to make sure that others are cared for. If you're weeping, I'm going to weep with you. And if you're rejoicing, I'm going to rejoice with you. All of these things are motivated by others' interest. And that's the covenant that we made together. In fact, um, all of these covenants are intended to say, I am covenanting with Brookstone Church so that the gospel of Jesus will go forth and, and, and Christ himself will be exalted and others will be built up in their faith. And when we live out those priorities and those values in the covenant, then the work goes forward. But here's a fact. We're going to put it on the screen. I don't know if it'll be up there. It's long. I don't know if you'll be able to write it all down. You don't have to write it down to remember it. I want you to have it in your heart. It is that when self-interest is the driving motivation of any local church, then the Spirit of God will depart that church. And the glory of Jesus will be diminished in that church. And the mission of the gospel will fail in that church. And don't you ever forget it. The minute your heart begins to shift toward what's in it for me, what's easy for me, how can I hedge every bet of my involvement and begin to isolate and not be together in this covenant? The minute you begin to do that, understand that to the degree that you carry influence in this body, you are moving toward the failure of the mission of the gospel. Because the covenant that we make together is the same covenant that the first church made together. That the gospel of Jesus would go forward to the ends of the earth and that disciples would be made. The consumer says... What's in it for me? And the servant says, I'm here for Christ and for others. And so which are you? A consumer or a servant? Well, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 44 says to us that all that believed were together. They had all things common and those that believed continued, the Bible says. Verse 42, those who were together and believing continued to believe. What was it that they believed? They believed that Jesus is God. 
They believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. They believe that Jesus was buried and rose from the dead. And they believe that Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords and one day would return to the earth. This was their conviction. And in that belief, they came together in a covenant to carry out the mission of Jesus around the world. If you believe those things, would you shout amen? And if you understand the reason we are together, then you will understand that the world will be a different place when the church fully, truly, completely comes together. Let's pray.